Hey, everybody. It is Thursday, January 18th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shwanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. I hope everyone is staying warm out there. More than half the country is dealing with freezing temperatures right now. (laughs) (laughs) How's that for the best commentary I could come up with? (laughs) We could work with some sound effects or we could just have Jill do the sound effects moving forward here on the pod. My conversational skills just keep improving. (laughs) You do have two small children at home, so I think the sound effects probably help explain things. Um, We should note, uh, those of you who listen to us daily on the pod, we appreciate you. Uh, We hope you also get the Mo newsletter. We're trying a different format over there uh, starting yesterday. uh, Trying to break down several stories instead of one story a day. Though when big news happens, we'll still do one big story. But we got some great feedback, Jill. We did. Much appreciated everyone who took uh, even a minute to just let us know what they thought of it. So thank you for that. And you will at times see some overlap with the podcast and the Instagram, but it is an opportunity. You know, we try to put a bunch of links in there for you to dive deeper into some of the stories we bring you daily. And here on the podcast, some of these special stories that you don't see anywhere else, like in the Instagram feed or the newsletter, those are stories that I find that I hide from Mosh so that he cannot take <laughs> and use on Instagram. <laughs> That's just for us podcasters. I can't use them. I can't burn them in other places. You know, the podcast still is a special place because you hear our voices and how we really <laughs> feel that you might not be able to glean from an Instagram post or the newsletter. So with that, let's get to some headlines here. The good news and bad news about cancer in America. On to politics, fresh off of his win in the Iowa caucus, Donald Trump spars with a judge in a New York City courtroom. Is this potentially part of his strategy? Short answer, yes. Overseas, China's population declines for a second straight year, what that means for the world's second largest economy. To the war between Israel and Hamas for the first time, an agreement to get medicine to Israeli hostages being held in Gaza in exchange for more aid. And President Biden redesignates Houthis as specially designated global terrorists. What exactly that means? Princess Kate hospitalized for up to two weeks after abdominal surgery. And King Charles also set to be hospitalized for a bit next week. And don't call it a comeback. Brunch is apparently back in vogue. Mosh, I never knew it was even gone. Jill, who's reporting this? What is this about? (laughs) When did brunch leave us? Mosh, apparently it's these fine dining establishments that have been thumbing their nose at brunch. Oh, okay. All right. I look forward to that in the speed. And Mosh has on this day in history. Jill, it's one of my favorite on this days of the year, January 18th. Why is that? This is the day America banned sliced bread. I'll explain. If you weren't listening to on this day last January 18th. Mosh, I was on the podcast and even I don't remember. So <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> All right. We're going to start with that new report that has some good news and some bad news about the state of cancer in America. The good news, cancer deaths in the United States are falling with 4 million deaths prevented since 1991. This is according to the American Cancer Society's annual report, the Cancer Society highlighting three chief factors in reduced cancer deaths, declines in smoking, early detection, and greatly improved treatments. Specifically, breast cancer mortality is one area where treatment had a significant impact Once regarded as an automatic death sentence, the report credits better screening and treatment for improvements. A paper in JAMA this week found that the death rate from breast cancer has fallen by almost half over the last five decades. The mortality rate is now at 27 per 100,000 women. 
down from 48 per 100,000 in 1975. But now to the bad news. The new report shows that the number of new cancer cases for all types of cancers had ticked up to more than 2 million in 2023 from 1.9 million in 2022. And they expect 2024 to also see 2 million more cases. Cancer remains the second leading cause of death in the United States after heart disease. Doctors believe it is urgent to understand changes in the death rate as well as changes in cancer diagnoses. The American Cancer Society found increases in all the incidents of many cancers, including breast, prostate, uterus, oral, liver, kidney, colon, and rectum in middle-aged adults. Melanoma also increased. Among men and women of all ages, lung cancer is still the leading cause of cancer death. Prostate cancer is second for men, breast cancer second for women, and colorectal cancer is third overall for both sexes. And colorectal cancer is one type that they are increasingly concerned about. While the overall rate of colorectal cancer has continued to decline, there is a major increase in people under the age of 55. In those younger people, the incidence is now 18.5 cases per 100,000 Americans and has been rising by 1% to 2% a year since the mid-1990s. Another 30,000 people are expected to be diagnosed this year. In the late 90s, colorectal cancer was the fourth leading cause of death for people younger than 50, and now it is the leading cause in men under 50 and the second leading cause in women. And doctors can't really say why for certain. Yeah, there's a lot of hypotheses out there, including increasing obesity rates, uh, sedentary behavior, people just not as active as they once were, uh, diets, uh, what's in our food, what's in processed food, what's in the water. There's a lot of theories here. They're trying to get to the bottom uh, of it, though, found it notable in some of the reporting here with this new report, Jill, out of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. They say they're seeing triathletes and marathon runners coming in with uh, colon cancer, super healthy people, uh, which is continuing to lead to questions as to what's causing this if they can't just blame it on obesity rates, especially when you're talking about marathon runners. So some suspect that something in the environment may be behind the rise as well uh, that's impacting our microbiomes, our immune systems, and making people susceptible to cancer at a younger age. Colonoscopy screening is now generally recommended to start at age 45, though if you have family history of illness, I certainly do in my family, you can get yours typically starting at age 40. Jill, I'm actually getting my first one in the next couple of weeks, uh, so I'll keep folks up to date on that. Oncologists say that you should get a colonoscopy when it's recommended or earlier if you have symptoms like blood in your stool, losing weight without trying, or a change in bowel habits. In recent years, with this increase in cancer among younger people, they have dropped the age uh, to start screening. As I mentioned, from colon cancer, they dropped it from 50 to 45. For breast cancer, they dropped it from 50 to 40. And we should note, you know, colon and breast cancer now beat lung cancer uh, as the top causes of cancer death for people under 50. And so there is this concern among young people, though for the most part, colorectal cancer still remains overwhelmingly a cancer for older people, but they have seen that rate declining in the last few years. And as we talk about factors here, we've been talking about environmental factors in diet. 30% uh, of diagnoses for those under the age of 50 are not related, though, to outside exposures. There, they blame family history, genetic mutation uh, for putting them at risk. So know your family history. You know, it's something that's not discussed in certain families where you might not even know the cause of death for, you know, various relatives that they keep it private. But it is so crucial to know these things because, again, the more family members that you've had impacted by various ailments, they should be on your radar screen starting at an ever younger age.
Uh, well, Moshe, unfortunately, I have some stomach issues, so I have had many a colonoscopies in my life. So if you're looking for any tips or advice, <laughs> I'm your girl. We could talk <laughs> offline, and I'll yeah, be happy to let you not. know. <laughs> let's definitely not, especially for the people eating breakfast this morning. We're not going to further talk about it. <laughs> All right, switching gears here. Just days after a huge win in Iowa and a few days before the New Hampshire primary, the front runner in the GOP race, we're talking former President Trump, found himself back in a courtroom getting a reprimand from a judge. So Trump was at writer E. Jean Carroll's defamation trial against him in New York. If you remember, Carroll already won a separate civil case last year. A jury found that Trump sexually abused her back in the 1990s and then defamed her and owed her $5 million in damages. This is a separate trial. Carroll is suing Trump for additional damages, saying that his attacks on her credibility since 2019 continue to harm her professionally and have her fearing for her safety. Yeah, he's continued to post about her on social media even after that last verdict. Well, if you remember, CNN had a town hall with him, I believe the day or two days after that verdict was first announced, and he was ripping into her. And and, right. and analysts had said, um, I think he could be in more trouble here for more defamation. And to that end, Carol telling the jury, I am here because Donald Trump assaulted me. And when I wrote about it, he said it never happened. He lied and shattered my reputation. So, again, this isn't about whether Trump is guilty because the jury in this civil case, again, it is a civil case, meaning there's no potential jail time here. That jury already decided that he is guilty. This is now just about whether or not he owes Carol even more money in damages. And as I mentioned, things got really heated in the courtroom. On Wednesday, the U.S. District Court judge, Lewis Kaplan, threatened to throw Trump out of court after the former president defied an order to keep quiet during Carol's testimony. So Trump was seated at the defense table and he was denigrating Carol loudly enough for the jury to have heard it. He was saying things like witch hunt uh, to his lawyer. Yeah, and, and apparently saying things like con job. The judge first said, I'm going to ask that Mr. Trump. <laughs> <laughs> this is Jill. This is what the reporters in the courtroom heard. <laughs> I mean, we <laughs> laugh. But this man was president and he's running for president again. But this is what was happening in the courtroom that got the attention of the judge. And is the front runner. Yes. Anyway, so the judge first said, I'm just going to ask that Mr. Trump take special care to keep his voice down when conferring with counsel so that the jury does not overhear it. But the former president apparently kept going, to which the judge said, Mr. Trump, I hope I do not have to consider excluding you from the trial. I understand you are very eager for me to do that. Trump apparently responded, I would love it. I would love it. The judge said, I know you would because you just can't control yourself in this circumstance. You just can't. Then Trump threw up his hands in a show of disapproval, very animated. And the reason you are getting kind of like Jill replaying this <laughs> is because no cameras, in the courtroom. No cameras yeah. are allowed in the courtroom. So you're stuck with my rendition of what happened. Yeah. And we should note here, Trump did not attend the initial trial. And he doesn't actually have to be at this trial either. He has chosen to show up at this trial. He may end up serving as a witness and testifying next week. That actually could come next Monday, a day before the New Hampshire primary. That said, optically here, he likes to be able to say he's the victim of a witch hunt, right? That he's being targeted. So him showing up in court, he actually feels plays to his strengths, despite the fact that he's been found liable for sexual assault and defamation case. He believes that, you know, showing up in courtroom, uh, and by the way, the poll numbers seem to show this, uh, that this helps him. 
with Republican voters that, you know, they believe that he's being targeted here. Uh, he also believes that his presence will convince the jury uh, to not find him or find him much less. Hence why, you know, he's blurting things out, hoping the jury hears what he's saying. And then as he left court already, he was already attacking the judge again on social media, uh, saying that the judge is a, quote, seething and hostile Clinton appointed judge, abusive, rude, not impartial. But that's the way the crooked system works. He said in one of the many social media posts um, that he has been posting both before and after the trial here. So here we are, less than a week before the next voting is set to take place in New Hampshire. The front runner is in court by choice in New York and kind of popping back and forth between New York and New Hampshire. He ended up stopping in court on Tuesday, going up to New Hampshire for his first event with Vivek Ramaswamy. Ramaswamy, by the way, had about 4 or 5% uh, in latest New Hampshire polls. So his hope is that that helps increase the margin and ensure that Trump can beat Haley in that state. Yeah. And back to the politics, New Hampshire is still a battle between Trump and Nikki Haley. And that race is getting quite nasty. The former president attacking Haley on the social media platform, Truth Social, we're all referring to her by her birth name, Nimarada. Some say that is a racist dog whistle. Haley is the daughter of Indian immigrants. She was born Nimarada Nikki Randhawa, but has always gone by Nikki since she was a kid. And then she took her husband's Michael Haley's last name after they married. Trump also amplifying a post that said falsely that Haley is not eligible to be president because her parents weren't U.S. citizens when she was born. She was born in South Carolina and is a U.S. citizen. So, I mean, by law, anybody who is born on American soil is a U.S. citizen. Yeah, that sort of takes you back to the birther claims that sort of first gave us uh, Trump's rise in politics more than a decade ago, as he claimed that President Obama at the time wasn't born in Hawaii. Uh, he was demanding Obama's birth certificate, saying he was totally born in Africa. He would make a point of calling him Barack Hussein Obama, Hussein being Obama's middle name, to emphasize the otherness of Obama. And so this is just the latest here on that. Nikki Haley responding, saying, I've always been called Nikki from the beginning and really trying to move on here. It's been notable in terms of Nikki Haley running against Trump here, how far she's willing to go to criticize him, not so far as to upset Trump voters because she's trying to win them over. So there was another occasion earlier this week, she was on CNN and was actually asked about that E. Jean Carroll trial that we just discussed. And uh, the anchor, uh, Dana Bash saying, so, you know, what do you make of it? He's, you know, already been found liable for sexual assault, etc. Nikki Haley responding, I haven't really been following it. I had, don't have much to say about that. And you're like, Nikki Haley, like, you're running against the guy for president. What, what do you mean you don't have much to say about any of his trials? She's like, I just I haven't been following it. So clearly, like, trying to be very careful in how she weaves these things, because you would think that you might have something to say about Trump in that trial. Uh, and so she's trying to take the high road of sorts here at times and trying to be very careful in terms of how she fights back against Trump. And we'll see what happens in New Hampshire. You know, as we've been talking about in the newsletter on this podcast, it's a state where you have a lot more independence. Democrats can vote in the Republican primary. Uh, Democrats, you know, some of them in Iowa showed up for Nikki Haley, re-registered as Republicans. That's sort of her hope here. New Hampshire is sort of tailor-made for her. And if there's going to be any early state where she can prove she can actually beat Trump in a state, New Hampshire is it. Notably, CNBC uh, in the last day has been talking to a bunch of donors who have raised or donated millions of dollars to Nikki Haley, who basically are like, she has to get very close to Trump here or beat him, or this is over. We're not going to dump any more money into the campaign. So while a number of you have reached out to us lamenting, you're like, how is this our process where one or two states dictate uh, who the nominee is going to be? 
Well, it's also because that's how the uh, fundraisers, the donors, the media, that's how they're all paying attention to it. And these candidates can stick in it for as long as they want. The question is, can they do it with little to no money? Now, given all the legal stuff Trump is facing, there is a school of thought that Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis have no incentive to drop out anytime early. They should stick this out through the primaries in June, because who knows, given all the legal stuff and other things that could happen here. And that's sort of one potential reason why you might see this primary go on for a very long time, even if Trump starts collecting state after state after state. All right, we have a lot more to get to in today's speed read. But first, I want to thank one of our big sponsors this week, Factor Meals. If you're pressed for time in your house, you still want to eat healthy, still want to eat nutritious, and you want something that's easy and ready to go in just minutes, try Factor. They provide ready-to-eat meals uh, delivered to your doorstep, never frozen, straight into the fridge, uh, and then good for several days. They are chef-prepared, dietitian-approved. Factor prepares breakfast, lunch, dinner, smoothies, beverages, ready-to-eat meals, again, straight to your door. Uh, I've tried them a number of times now, so has Jill. Uh, Loving the ease, loving the taste, and of course, you get to skip that trip to the grocery store, the chopping, the prepping, the cleaning up, uh, and you still get all the flavor of a homemade meal. Right now, you can choose for more than 35 weekly meals. They also have to-go meals that don't require uh, being warmed up at all, grain bowls, salad toppers, etc. Again, ready in just a couple minutes. Head to factormeals.com slash monews50. That's the deal right now, 50% off for the monews audience. Again, factormeals.com slash Mo News 50, the number 50, for 50% off. And if you're a longtime listener, you know we have been drinking AG1 for about a year now, especially with two young kids. I could use all the help I can get in the energy department, and that's where AG1 comes in. AG1 is a foundational nutrition supplement. Each serving of AG1 delivers a daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre- and probiotics, And it's a powerful, healthy habit. And it's also really simple. Basically, just one drink in the morning and you're covered for the rest of the day. AG1 has been continuing to refine its formula to create a smarter, better way to elevate your baseline health. And it is tested for 950 contaminants and certified as well for sport. Again, I take AG1 in the morning and it's kind of like this insurance policy. A friend of mine who also drinks AG1 mentioned it. He said... He drinks it and he knows he is covered for the day, regardless of what else he eats. He knows he's gotten all of the nutrients he needs. So if you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash monews. That is drinkag1.com slash monews. Check it out. Okay, time now for the speed read. Let's start overseas from the Associated Press. A shipment of medicine for dozens of hostages held by Hamas arrived in Gaza on Wednesday after France and Qatar mediated the first agreement between Israel and the militant group since a week-long ceasefire in November. Qatar saying the shipment had crossed into Gaza without saying whether the medicine had been distributed. Yeah, they're depending on the Red Cross here to actually get the medication to these hostages that have gone more than 100 days of being held underground without their medication. A senior official for Hamas says that for every box provided to the hostages, a thousand boxes of medicine would be sent in for Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. The deal also includes the delivery of humanitarian aid to residents in Gaza. That's where nearly two million people are displaced. 
And uh, the UN is very worried about malnutrition and a number of health issues as this war continues. It is notable, though, that there was an agreement struck here amid the ongoing conflict. No signs of ending anytime soon. You've heard the Israelis say this could go on through this year into next year, that this is a long process of eliminating Hamas. Uh, Notably, Hamas was able to successfully launch several dozen rockets uh, in the last 48 hours, leading to questions about, you know, has Israel been able to effectively take out the group? The Israelis saying that, you know, cleanup here is very challenging. And as we mentioned on the pod yesterday, there could be upwards of 500 miles of tunnels uh, underground in Gaza, where there could be more weaponry uh, and more fighters. Meanwhile, from the Washington Post, the Biden administration redesignated the Houthi militants as a specially designated global terrorist or SDGT group Wednesday amid continued attacks by the Yemen-based militia. Administration officials said special designation is aimed at deterring the Houthis from their ongoing aggression from the Iran-backed group in the Red Sea. The administration saying, quote, these attacks are a clear example of terrorism and a violation of international law and a major threat to lives, global commerce, and the delivery of humanitarian goods. The administration delisted the Houthis as an SDGT and as a foreign terrorist organization in February of 2021, after it was designated by the Trump administration in its final weeks. And the reasoning was because at the time, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said the decision to remove the group's designation was driven by concerns that it could imperil the ability to deliver crucial assistance to the people of Yemen. Yeah, essentially, it's much harder for nonprofits and governments to provide aid to people who need it in countries or territories controlled by terrorist groups. And so, you know, if you want to be able to provide humanitarian aid to that area, you have to navigate that. And so that's why the U.S. has been trying to avoid this. Keep in mind, the majority of Yemenis live under poverty. Several hundred thousand have been killed in recent years uh, during that civil war that has been led by the Houthis. Millions displaced, uh, the majority of the population uh, malnourished, uh, some on the verge of starvation there. So they very much depend on humanitarian aid. And keep in mind, Gaza is another example where Hamas is actually a foreign terrorist organization. And so that's made it difficult for years for aid groups to get in there because of the concerns about that aid going to the terrorist group themselves and just navigating that whole situation. But the pressure here has grown. We've talked about it for weeks here as the Houthis have been launching attack after attack after attack in the Red Sea on global commerce. They've effectively closed down one of the world's main trade routes to most container ships. And so the feeling is by using this SDGT designation, that'll increase sanctions on the Houthis. As far as what we've heard from the Houthis, Nothing's going to stop them here. But the U.S. did stop short of giving them the FTO designation, foreign terrorist organization, sort of an escalated thing above SDGT, which would have imposed travel bans and other sanctions, because, again, it gives them better flexibility, the White House says, when it comes to managing humanitarian aid. So there's like levels of terrorist groups. They've given them one designation, but not the highest designation for what it's worth. One of the more unexpected, uh, I would say, outcomes of the last 100 days or so since this war started is this weird support that the Houthis are getting amongst some liberals and and amongst some people who are trying to show their support for Palestinians. Um, But a reminder, this is a movement, again, backed by Iran, um, whose slogan is, God is the greatest, death to America, death to Israel, a curse upon the Jews, victory to Islam. And in a lot of ways, they are just getting involved here to cause some chaos. 
Yeah, and I wouldn't hitch your ride to the uh, Houthi wagon. They're also restoring slavery uh, in parts of Yemen in their areas. Uh, women can't leave the house unless accompanied by a man. And of course, they've torn apart that country, leading to the fact that you have more than 20 million people in that country who are dependent on humanitarian aid or could die. From the Wall Street Journal, China reported a record low birth rate in 2023 as its population shrank for the second year in a row. The trend marked the deepening of a demographic challenge set to have significant implications on the world's second largest economy, causing alarm among policymakers desperately trying to reverse the trend. The country's population dropped 0.15 percent or 2.08 million people, leaving the overall population at 1.409 billion last year. China had fewer than half the number of births in 2023 than the country did in 2016 after China abolished the one-child policy. The latest number points to a fertility rate, the number of children a woman has over her lifetime, that is close to 1.0, a level considered by demographers as, quote, ultra-low. Yeah, simply if you're doing the math here, if two people only have one child and that's extrapolated across the country, the population declines. You're not fully replacing the two parents. And declines quite precipitously, especially if you're not increasing the population in other ways, like through immigration. Because of the decades-long one-child policy, there are fewer young people than in past generations, including millions fewer women of childbearing age every year. Because families were restricted to having one child for decades, many families aborted or gave up baby girls for adoption, preferring to have a son. Right, especially in rural areas where they felt that the sun could help uh, with farming or uh, physical work, etc. Well, that has taken its toll for a number of decades. They finally reversed it a few years ago, but it's not reversing itself quickly. A lot of women in China, for a variety of reasons, same here in the U.S., uh, don't want to be marrying early, don't want to have uh, as many kids as the government would like there. You have seen an example in some cities like Wuhan, where they're trying to pay women money to have more children, not so effective so far. And so right now, you've seen a turning point here in China, starting in 2022, the first year, the population started shrinking. Last year, for the first time, India surpassed China as the most populous country on earth. Uh, And if you look at the demographic trend here, China could drop below a billion people Uh, By the end of the century, as this continues, Nigeria actually will be said to have a larger population than China in the coming years. So the government's putting out these incentives. The translation here for those of you who ask is when you have a declining population and aging population, the economy doesn't grow. Uh, And then you also have to support all these older people. And in a place like China, the older people are much less well off than older people in other countries. You also have a situation in China where they have a very young retirement age uh, there, Jill. Uh, Many women can retire as young as 50, some at 55. Men can retire at 60. uh, And so you have to support these people for a very long time. And without a young workforce paying into the system, that becomes very difficult. Also, as you mentioned, immigration basically non-existent in China. That's where while the U.S. has seen a declining birth rate, not as significant as China, we tend to allow in many more immigrants. So that replenishes Uh, the population. And those immigrants often then typically have more children. So this is a demographic trend we're not just seeing in China, we're not just seeing in the US, we're seeing it across Europe, we're seeing it in Russia, where the population is declining in places like Russia, in Italy, uh, in Japan significantly. A few years ago, I did a story for CBS, where we visited uh, communities and schools that are completely abandoned now, as the population declines in Japan. But Japan has figured out ways so far to extend the workforce, have elderly people work, et cetera, to keep that economy going. China, 
it's much more earlier. It's not as advanced or developed as an economy as the U.S. and some other nations. And they're already seeing this demographic trend, which is going to be unique here and is going to be a major challenge for the Chinese. From NBC News, Kate, the Princess of Wales, has undergone planned abdominal surgery and will be hospitalized for up to two weeks, according to Kensington Palace. The 42-year-old wife of Prince William, Britain's future king, will take a prolonged break from her normally busy schedule of public appearances and private engagements. The palace says the surgery was successful and it is expected that she will remain in the hospital for 10 to 14 days before returning home to continue her recovery the statement did not elaborate on the reason for the procedure, but sources say that it is not cancer related. In that statement, they say the Princess of Wales appreciates the interest that this statement will generate. She hopes that the public will understand her desire to maintain as much normality for her children as possible and her wish that her personal medical information remains private. Meanwhile, her husband, William, will also be postponing a number of engagements as he's juggling both caring for his wife and looking after the three kids. And it's notable, as news of her surgery came, as we also learned yesterday from Buckingham Palace, that King Charles, her father-in-law, will also be hospitalized next week. Good luck to the security and the logistics at the hospital between Kate there and Charles there. He'll be undergoing a corrective procedure uh, due to an enlarged prostate. Uh, so they're being very open, the king is, about his condition. The palace says that uh, the 75-year-old uh, monarch will have his public engagements postponed for a bit as he recuperates uh, and that he was keen, the king is, to share the details related to the prostate to try to encourage other men to get checked out. So they tried to make it a public health message as far as the king is concerned. And from Axios, breakfast is back. Mosh, I never knew it left. <laughs> this has been a thing for a while, folks. Restaurants are trying to figure out, you know, they've they've they figured out lunch, they figured out dinner, and they are, are desperate to continue to make find ways to make more money by uh, adjusting their breakfast menus. So fine dining restaurants, fast food outlets, and supermarkets are doubling down on breakfast and brunch in 2024. Wendy's has added English muffin sandwiches. Taco Bell's testing breakfast tots. Oh, those sound good. And Burger King is piloting Grillwich breakfast sandwiches, all giving market leader McDonald's a run for its money. After getting known for its egg sandwiches and egg bites, Starbucks is testing out potato, cheddar, and chive bakes. Breakfast-centered restaurants like First Watch, Waffle House, and Eggs Up Grill have been expanding and rising in popularity. IHOP has refurbished its menu. One of the reasons here, our post-pandemic dining habits have us eating meals earlier, relying more heavily on ready-to-eat snacks, trying to spend less money on meals, and seeking out less processed foods, all trends that breakfast purveyors are trying to capitalize on. <laughs> People trying to find less processed foods. Let's head to Wendy's, Taco Bell, and Burger King. Yeah, they might want to rethink the strategy. <laughs> At the same time, fine dining chefs who historically have held their noses at serving brunch, apparently, are reluctantly opening their restaurants in the morning, recognizing they can deliver some of their finest meals to the power breakfast crowd. A number of chefs, according to the story, are reviving special occasion brunches with the hope, of course, to get people to run up pricey bar tabs with spicy Bloody Marys. I would know nothing about that, Mosh. <laughs> oh, no, you never get the spicy Bloody Mary or two. <laughs> Well, one food consultant tells Axios that suddenly high food prices and lingering recession fears will have Americans gravitating towards buying breakfast as a budget-conscious splurge in 2024. That's what the consultant is saying, apparently. On the weekends, brunch will become the new dinner, thanks to equally appealing social aspects, large adult beverage selections, and lower average checks. 
So keep that in mind next time you try to show up to your local brunch place uh, without a reservation, especially in big cities. So apparently, Moshe, according to Axios, let's do brunch kind of became this obnoxious cliche. Mm-hmm. Well, if you don't remember that, apparently neither do young people who are carrying it forward as a weekend social experience. Avocado toast, Jill. Avocado <laughs> toast. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Also to note, hot honey breakfast sandwiches are listed as one of 2024's top 10 trending foods in the National Restaurant Association's latest annual culinary forecast. If you want to appeal to Gen Z breakfast eaters, Apparently, you should serve them a wonut, that is a waffle donut mashup, or a biscuit donut hybrid. And they also like ethnic options like Mexican chilaquilas and healthy options like yogurt parfaits and homemade oatmeal. Sounds like uh, Gen Z just like us, Jill. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the, you know what Gen Z is into? Yogurt and oatmeal. I love, I think I'm going to leave the podcast and become a food consultant. I feel like you and Alex kind of have a side business going where you guys kind of are like restaurant experts and critics. We try to get out and about in New York when we can. Harder harder with a baby these days, but actually daytime easier than dinner. Brunches um, for you. Exactly. Brunches, brunches <laughs> for parents with young kids, as I've quickly learned as a new father. All right, now time for On This Day in History. We begin in 1919 in Paris, France. I don't know how many of you have traveled to Versailles, but world leaders gathered in Versailles outside of Paris uh, to begin the negotiations that would mark the end of the First World War, then called the Great War. Uh, They didn't realize another world war would happen just 20 years later. Representatives from Germany were excluded from the peace conference. Germany was actually forced to pay huge reparations, forfeit a lot of territory. It actually gave rise to resentment in Germany that would then lead to the rise of a certain leader named Adolf Hitler several years later. The Treaty of Versailles would be signed several months later in June of 1919, creating things like the League of Nations. The thought then, Jill, was this would be the end of war after so many countries in the world uh, had seen such significant losses. Sadly, it was not. To a World War II on this day in history, actually not related to the war itself, but what was going on on the home front in the U.S. On this day, January 18th, 1943, 81 years ago, the U.S. banned sliced bread. At the time, the Secretary of Agriculture, Claude Wickard, uh, declared that the selling of sliced bread was illegal. The thought then was that sliced bread required thicker wrapping uh, to stay fresh. So his goal as the Secretary of Agriculture was to save wax paper, not to mention tons of steel used to make bread slicing machines. So they were trying to do this to preserve wax paper, to save, etc. So the U.S. government literally in 43, a couple years into the war, says no more sliced bread to be sold. Well, less than a week after the ban, the whole thing began to unravel. New York City Mayor LaGuardia made a public announcement that bakeries that already had bread slicing machines could keep slicing bread. That then caused a rift between the bakers with slicing machines and the bakeries that did not have slicing machines. By early March, this turned into like a whole bread war. And so the federal government abandoned the sliced bread ban. But between January and March of 1943, it was officially illegal to sell sliced bread. I'm glad that was short-lived, Moshe, because sandwiches (laughs) will just never be the same. (laughs) Jill, we buy like a bread loaf and I try to slice and, and, you know, Alex always like laments. She's like, can you just slice two pieces of bread with the same thickness? So we actually got something from Amazon that like, will I think slice it all evenly. We're trying to find the best contraption. Honestly, DM me on Instagram. If you found the contraption that ensures that if you buy a loaf of bread and take it home, that you can cut even slices because... If you're anything like me, I 
they're all over the place. And they're like, these will go to French toast and these will go to sandwiches. And this one is too thin for anything. I'll move on now. Jill, we'll end here with a bit of pop culture on this day in 1975. You came and you gave without taking one of Barry Manilow's greatest hits. Reached number one on this day in history, staying in 1975, actually. The Jeffersons, a spinoff of All in the Family, premiered on CBS, one of those classic TV shows, Norman Lear TV shows of the 1970s. And Jill, I have an item here to end. A little Gen Z on this day in history. On this day 14 years ago, can you believe it was so long ago? The Beebs releases Baby just coming off of his debut album. And now he is all grown up, Mosh, married to Haley Bieber. But yeah, and for anyone who says we do not listen to what people want, we heard from some young people who said that on this day was perhaps geared a little bit too much to us. The Xennials. Old millennials, early Gen Xers. Uh, so you ask, we delivered. And apparently uh, the silent generation, Jill, I'm, I'm bringing stuff back from World War One too. But <laughs> we're bringing stuff from the teens here. <laughs> but I'm going to try my best to find historical items from the, from the 21st century as well. All right, everybody, thank you for listening to the Mo News Podcast. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. It will help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store. And for you Mo News Premium members, if you haven't uh, listened to our new podcast, an interview focused on the future of American democracy, what's wrong with our system, how we almost eliminated the Electoral College, uh, what's wrong with the Senate, the Supreme Court, basically, as America turns 250 years old in the next couple of years, what are some tweaks we can make to the system to ensure democracy can last here? I think we've gotten great feedback from it so far. It's my interview with Stephen Levitsky, a uh, Harvard professor who dove into democracies around the world and where the U.S. ranks on a variety of things. So uh, check that out over on the Mo News Premium podcast. If you're not a premium member, you can join today over at mo.news slash premium, just $7 a month. All right. Bye, everybody. Later. Thanks for listening to the Mo News podcast.